Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Today's topic is living in light of the end. What do we mean by the end? Well, this refers to what's commonly called the end of the world as we know it, perhaps better stated as the consummation of the ages. You see, at the very heart of the biblical revelation is the belief in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of all by God. The New Testament specifically connects these events to the physical, bodily, visible return of Jesus Christ to this earth. But how do we know when this may happen? Or can we even know? When there are a lot of natural disasters and outbreaks of war, especially if it involves the nation of Israel or the Jewish people, many people think that the end is imminent. But Jesus' exact words is recorded in Matthew 24 and also repeated more or less in Mark 13 and Luke 21 are the following. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but be not alarmed, for the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Now, Jesus was answering a question, you see, that his disciples had asked him when they were leaving the temple at a Passover. This is the Passover just prior to his death, followed by his resurrection. The disciples pointed out to him the the building, the massiveness and the beauty of the temple. But he told them all of these things that you see will be torn down and there will not be one stone left on another. Now they could not imagine that this would happen unless it would be the end of all things. So they asked him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? In reality, they're asking him two questions, but in their mind, it's only one. But Jesus answers the two questions that are there. Jesus, as a prophet, in fact, as the prophet, was telling them of the future event of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which did take place in 70 AD. But Jesus was speaking both of the rejection of Jesus for his Messiahship and of his return after that from heaven as the Son of Man to inaugurate the new age and to be the judge. He does give some indicators of what his actual returning would signal immediately. That is, when he's returning, there might be some phenomenon that you see, and that would be his imminent descent to the earth. But when will this event, this day happen? He says no day and no hour can be known. People cannot know the day, the day and hour, or the time when he will return. He describes the second coming, his second coming, in these words. 
then will appear in heaven, that would be the atmosphere, the sign, not signs, but the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. So he's speaking both in the immediate, that is the next 30, 40 years, a generational span of the destruction of Jerusalem and of his return to earth that will occur in God knows when time. So with current events, you may, as many people do, feel anxious about such an event because you see signs of the times. But signs of the times are not necessarily the sign of Jesus' actual coming because he says we can never know nor actually predict the time of the return of Jesus as the Son of Man. But let's just assume for a minute that these are the end times. What then? How should a Christian respond? How should we prepare for that great day if it was tomorrow or next week? How shall a Christian be prepared to meet the Lord? Well, you know, Jesus has answered that question more than once. And he didn't just answer it on this day when they were leaving the temple. Earlier in Luke chapter 21, well, that is the, the time he's speaking of now, but he says the following, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus says, we should remain prepared always for his return. And he tells us negatively what we should not do. We should not yield to the way that the world and the world system handle imminent things that they fear by abandoning themselves to wickedness or to things that would help them just forget that possibility. Such things as drunkenness, trying to escape the cares and the anxieties of this life. But Jesus is not the only one who answers the question, and he answers it more than once. But Peter, who is probably one of those apostles who asked him that question on the day they were leaving the temple, since Jesus had come and when he wrote, he had come, he had died, he had been resurrected and ascended into heaven, and Peter now is a leading apostle, was establishing churches and strengthening believers, and he writes his first epistle, and one of the things on his mind and heart is the fact that his Lord and our Lord is returning and we should be prepared for that. He, he writes this in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says. 
that grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians live in hope of the return of their Savior, not in fear. They live in hope because God's grace is going to be so fully manifested upon them at his return. Now, that does not mean that we won't be judged for the way we've lived our lives as Christians and be rewarded accordingly. But it does mean that the coming of the Lord does not confront us with eternal judgment or hell. Why? Because Christ has endured that for us already on the cross and he has sent his spirit to live within us and through the spirit we have union with Christ and all that Christ did on our behalf, we did in him. And so our judgment is past and at the future return of Christ, grace will be brought to you. But that does not mean we should not live in great awareness and righteousness looking for that day. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he specifically takes up this kind of inquiry. And Jesus, uh, through the apostle Peter now, is giving instructions to us. So here's what Peter writes. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 1 Peter 4 chapter 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they want to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now notice that that connects directly with 1 Peter 1, verse 13. It also connects with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where Peter writes in his second letter, since all these things, that is the current world order, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So let's review what he said briefly. 
He speaks of how, first of all, we should not try to prepare for that day. That is, we should not revert to living as a person who does not know God, one who has not been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Negatively, we are not to be weighed down with such fears and anxieties that we revert to doing such things as living under the influence of alcohol and drugs and things that try to make us forget what's going on and we lose ourselves in the following of selfishness and sensual, sinful activities and idolatry. We are never to do these kind of things. That's not the way to prepare for the coming of the Lord. That's the way to receive not well done, good and faithful servant, but a reprimand from the Lord and Master and whatever follows such reprimand. We will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And therefore, since we may give an account to him, we must live in light of the fact that we are stewards of God's mercies, God's grace, God's blessings, God's endowment. And therefore, we must handle all that we've been given in Christ with great care and soberness, looking to glorify him with our lives by serving others, especially those who are of a household of faith. So negatively, we're to avoid living like Gentiles or people who do not know God. Instead, we are to live as those who have been redeemed by God. He describes that specifically in the following terms. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, we are to be people who have, by the Spirit's enablement and God's instruction in his word and the fellowship of fellow believers to be in control of our lives under his direction. And we are to think seriously. Sober-minded means to think seriously and to regard life not with sadness, but joyfully, but nevertheless as serious, as full of meaning and full of what we need to do to give an account, a good account to him who is coming back again. Now he gives us some specific instructions now, just briefly, what are they? Well, first of all, he says we must love one another earnestly. He's talking about us who are members of the body of Christ. We are to love our fellow believers earnestly. And love, such love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, Christians are going to sometimes sin against one another. We're going to sometimes do things that aggravate one another, that are just plain wrong toward one another. But we must forgive. We must exercise the grace that God has endowed upon us by giving it to others. We must love others earnestly, deeply from our hearts. Now we have to show such love in our words, in our actions and sometimes by our lack of responding to things that might upset us negatively. Secondly, we're to show hospitality to one another. That means we're to have open homes, open homes, open hearts, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling and complaining. 
Oh, they're going to come see me again. No, no. We should gladly open our homes and our lives hospitably to one another. That's how God can bless us. Sometimes, who knows, even an angel might come. And God has given us gifts. He's distributed spiritual gifts within his body. We don't all have the same spiritual gifts. We do have the same spiritual life. We have the same great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have different gifts. And those gifts are to be employed for the sake of the body of Christ because in serving the body of Christ, we are serving our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And we do so with the strength that God himself supplies. Exercise your spiritual gifts as unto God with self-control and earnestness. The writer to Hebrews takes up this theme as well in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And when we read these verses, we should remember that the primary way of preparing for the return of the Lord joyfully and with sober-mindedness is by being an active participant in the body of Christ as it meets in local assemblies of which we are affiliated. You can worship Christ in the invisible church, but you can worship Christ in the local body of believers of flesh and blood, just like you. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by that new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, we persevere in the Christian faith primarily by means of participating in the body of Christ because perseverance and preservation is actually a body activity. The same is true of worship, And the same is true of preparation for the return of the Lord. It's a community project in which we are involved. Paul takes up this word in Romans 13. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. For the night is far gone, the day is at hand. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus, when shall these things be? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, guess what? Jesus is at least 2,000 years closer to coming to us than he was then. Yes, he could come soon. Because you know, the events of the last days that he prophesied could soon quickly fall into place and be consummated. So we cannot predict when Christ will come. But we can live as Christians who are always prepared to meet the Lord with gladness and with joy. Peter, as Peter sees it, end-time Christians are called to do one thing, 
They're to practice holiness. They're to live godly lives and to do good to others wherever and whenever they can. They're supposed to do the work, to work the works of God while it is day. That's our calling, to live for Jesus, to live for his glory, and to actively serve him as members of the body of Christ, not depending on our works or on the activities of the church or even its belief systems, but solely looking to Jesus Christ, to him who is our Savior, because it's by his grace, through faith in him, that we are saved and that we are kept for the day of God. There's a hymn that expresses this great truth. I'm sure we'll sing it very soon in the assembly of which I'm a part. It's great God, what do I see and hear? I want to read three of the stanzas to you. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. Behold, the judge of all appear on clouds of glory seated. The trumpet sounds, the graves restore, the dead which they contained before prepare my soul to meet him. The dead in Christ shall first arise at that last trumpet sounding, called up to meet him in the skies with joy their Lord surrounding. No gloomy fears their souls dismay. His presence brings eternal day for those prepared to meet him. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. Behold, the judge of all appear on clouds of glory seated. Lo, at his cross I view the day when heaven and earth shall pass away and thus prepare to meet him. Do you understand? It's by looking to Jesus on the cross where he bore the judgment of God for us. It's looking to him in faith that we are prepared to meet him. For he who is the judge, the judge of all the earth, is also our glorious Savior. Christians, look up. Your redemption draws near. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insight.